Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Hello and welcome. This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Ryan Domble, features editor at the website. Pooja and Jeremy are out this week. And today I'm joined by a couple of my wisest, most trusted co-workers, senior editor Anna Gatza and contributing editor Phil Sherburn. Hey guys. Hey Ryan. Hi. So today we're talking about a couple albums from Two of our favorite eccentric artists who we've been following for quite a while. Both of them are known for pushing boundaries of genre, gender, identity, and pretty much everything else that you could possibly think of. Radical Romantics is the third solo record by Karen Dreyer, who performs as Fever Ray. And Eve's Tumor's latest is called Praise a Lord Who Choose, But Which Does Not Consume parentheses, or simply hot between worlds. Let's start with Viva Ray. Phil, can you give us a little background on their wonderful and bizarre career thus far? Yeah, so Karen Dreyer's from Stockholm, Sweden, and they've been experimenting with electronic pop for more than 20 years. They were first known as a member of The Knife alongside their brother Olaf Dreyer, The Knife started out making relatively sunny music like their very, very, very popular song, Heartbeats. But they quickly became really mysterious sort of pop provocateurs, especially with their album Silent Shout. They wore masks, they published manifestos, they played with gender roles, and basically subverted every hierarchy that they could get their hands on. When I think of their sort of hijinks over the years, the one that always comes to mind is an award show in 2010, where Fever Ray was accepting a trophy, and they came up to the mic wearing a red hood that they pulled back from their head, and underneath was this mask that was like, it looked like their face was melting, like their skin was dripping in sort of globules. And then instead of giving a speech, they just sort of groaned into the mic. It was very, very weird. (laughs) One of my favorite award speeches of all time, for sure. (laughs) So Karen (laughs) launched Fever Ray in, I think it was 2009. Fever Ray Project has really taken on its own character, kind of progressing beyond what began as, you know, this atmospheric electronic pop. Karen came out as queer around 2017's Plunge. 
and they use that album to sort of explore the ways that the personal could be political and vice versa. There's a really great song on that album, This Country, and the lyric goes, free abortions and clean water. Every time we fuck, we win. This house makes it hard to fuck. This country makes it hard to fuck. I mean, they'd always talked about kind of the intersection of the personal and the political, but they really brought it down to sort of nuts and bolts on plunge. And now on their new record, Radical Romantics, it's their first in six years. It's very much an album about desire and sex. But um, as I expect we're going to get into in this discussion, it's about some other things as well. So let's get into the new album, which to me, it kind of sounds like a bit of a culmination or almost a combination between the first two in some ways. But Anna, I know you reviewed this album, Radical Romantics. What are some of the themes that you pulled out the things that really grabbed you when you were listening. At first, I found it a little difficult to penetrate. And the first thing that I sort of picked up on through this weirdness or just unusual textures that kind of characterize like the fever ray world is that I started to hear sort of a desire for human connection. Uh-huh. The main thing that I think Fever Ray sees is a theme of this album, which is love in a really broad sense, not only romantic love, but also like love between family members and like love that solidifies society. I also hear a lot of like fire imagery on this album, kind of balanced with the water imagery as well. Fever Ray sent out a fact sheet with this album and the top of the fact sheet kind of gives their little details and it has their name and their age and their pronouns and then it says Aries not that it matters but it's fun to think about and of course you know <laughs> I'm I'm not a big astrology person myself but I know that Aries is a fire sign and I do hear some of those little elements in the album like on the song New Utensils which is a little bit it's a little bit impenetrable but one of the images on that song is of someone building a fire And there's a Bible verse that they cite on this album that is 1 Corinthians 13. It's where the phrase like love is patient, love is kind comes from. It's in this Bible passage. In some translations of this passage, there's a line that says like, even if I give all my possessions to the poor, even if I give my body over to be burned, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So I've been thinking about that as well in the imagery of love is like this fire. You know, you see somebody and there's a spark and now there's a fire. Fire can be destructive as well, right? Fire is essential to life and it's like part of why humans exist. And it can also be destructive and love is the same way. They talk about that in uh, in the interview with Sasha Geffen, no? This idea of like habits that are self-destructive and things that maybe you want to do and you have to tell yourself no. I found that really interesting, this idea of like part of understanding yourself and part of understanding your own desire is learning what you shouldn't allow yourself anymore. That interview with Sasha Geffen was on Pitchfork and um, Karen had a lot of great things to say about, yeah, this idea of maybe plunge the previous album was, you know, quite literally kind of a plunge into this new queer world. I think they referred to it as they felt like a sexual baby, um, <laughs> just kind of 
you know, being exposed to all of these new things. And this album is a little bit more contemplative in that way, that love takes time to process and there's no kind of quick fixes to love because Karen is an enigmatic figure, but at this point we do know a few things about them. They're 47, they have two teenage kids, they were divorced from their husband. You know, they've clearly been through a lot and I think they bring this wisdom to this album in a way that I'm not sure if I've ever felt in their music before. But there's a real sense of like unease, even in the songs about sex and desire, like in Shiver, which to me seems like one of the most kind of like overtly sexual songs. It's got uh, lyrics like, killer skies, thick thighs, some girls will make you blush, some girls will make you shiver, some girls you want to thrust, some girls you want to see shiver. I mean, it's a very sexual song, but at the same time, just in the tone of Karen's voice, I hear a real, I don't know if uneasiness is the right word, and maybe it has to do with the vocal processing that they use, but it's not this like strutting, swaggering, it's different from the lyrics. I think when I first heard Shiver, I really heard those explicit lyrics and was like, woo, like spicy. And as I've continued to hear it more, it it sounds more dangerous. It sounds more cautious, nervous, and it's not always like an excited nervousness. That could just even be a representation of just like a dramatic representation of the uncertainty that you feel like when you swipe someone on Tinder and you're like, ooh, I'm not sure how I feel about this. And also I was thinking about the characters that Karen is playing with for this album, which include this kind of office drone character with a cheesy tie and suit and cheesy haircut. And also this Lothario character who is bald with this creepy blonde hair on the sides, like coming down, like a midlife crisis ponytail pot belly type person. And Karen plays both of these characters. And, you know, in the video for another new song called Candy, the kind of Lothario character is doing a dance for the square character. And it's just like kind of like a mind blown moment just watching this video. Like, I'm not really sure what exactly what you're supposed to think, but it will give you feelings that you maybe have never felt before. It did remind me of this, the importance of humor to this project, um, whereas we're talking about, you know, <laughs> this is about the dark sides of sex and exhaustion. But they're always, for a lot of the album, they're also approaching it in this kind of funny way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really funny album. I mean, looking for a ghost starts with the line, we don't come with a manual eating out like a cannibal. I mean... That's hilarious. That's, it's, <laughs> it's like, it's, you, I, I don't know how they could sing that with a straight face, which maybe is why they, they have the elaborate makeup on and the, and the bald head and stuff like that. I don't know if you guys found this funny, but Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, of, of course, of Nine Inch Nails and all of your favorite soundtracks co-produced a couple of songs on this album. 
And one of them is called Even It Out. And the subject matter of this song really struck me because I've never heard a song take on this subject matter. And I've heard a lot of songs (laughs) over the years. The song is basically about Karen telling off someone who bullied their teenager, uh, you know, their child. You know, the lyric is literally, this is for Zacharias who bullied my kid in high school. There's no room for you and we know where you live. Like... (laughs) That is like kind of scary, um, but it's also (laughs) hilarious to me. Like, I'm not condoning bullying. (laughs) Um, But yeah, just this idea of like a parent calling out their kid's bully in a song is amazing to me. I don't know. (laughs) Do you guys like this one? It's a big year for like ethically ambiguous parental helicopter parenting. No, it, it, it always makes me think of Lydia Tarr and the ish dish, I will get you. I mean, it's terrifying. <laughs> and, you know, as a parent who would probably do that very thing, it's so, so wrong. I mean, at least change the name. Like apparently the bully's name is not really Zacharias. So I think the song aspires to something a little bit bigger. It's not only just an anecdote in a bigger story. I think they mean evening out the entire injustice of the world, making it clear when they say there's no room for you. That means everyone who holds cruel or like demeaning beliefs about other people. You make it sound like a Fugazi lyric or something. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, listening to the song, you know, the Trent Reznor of it is just such a perfect match because, you know, the, the instrumental is kind of a little bit of a harder edged palette than maybe what we're used to hearing from Fever Ray, and it just matches this subject matter and this story. Looking for a ghost was something that Anna was talking about, and I was just wondering if you could speak on the wide range of influences on that track. Yeah, so I had help discovering these because Fever Ray had a little cheat sheet, a little information sheet that they sent out along with the album mentioning some of these influences, but they didn't specify exactly what the influences were. So I did have to do a little bit of research and kind of track down where I think they're coming from. So they said that there's one part of this song, Looking for a Ghost. This is also the same song that we quoted earlier with Eating Out Like Cannibal. So first you hear Eating Out Like Cannibal. You're cracking up because who's ever said that before? (laughs) And then they quote a Bob Marley song. And I'm pretty sure the Bob Marley song is Satisfy My Soul, where they have a little section in the song where they sing like, I like it like this, steady like this, kind of a appeal to stability, safety in a relationship. I like it, like it, like this. So keep it like this. They also mentioned that this song was inspired by Porno for Pyros, which is one of the bands by Perry Farrell from Jane's Addiction and just like a noted freak and weirdo. And <laughs> I think it's the Porno for Pyros song Sadness. And that line echoes some of the final lines of Looking for a Ghost, the Fever Ray song. One of the last influences on this song, on the writing of the song that they cited, is Barbara Lindgren, who is 
not a name I was familiar with at all, but she's a beloved children's author from Sweden. And I was looking up some of her books. She has a lot of books, but I have just a guess for what book might have made it into this song, which is called The Tale of the Tiny Man. And it's about a lonely little boy. And he posts a note that says, friend wanted and waits for someone to show up. And in the Fever Ray song, they sing like, you wrote a note and like put it on my windshield. And it's kind of a parallel theme of this idea of just like, what would happen if you put a note in your windshield that says like, looking for a friend. Looking for a person. I also hear this song as being a little bit like a dating profile as well. It's kind of this collage of references that they're putting together, just like when you're swiping through dating profiles and kind of being like, what is this person into? Like, here's Fever Ray saying, I am equally into... Bob Marley, Perry Farrell, and a children's book that I probably read to my own kids. So as mysterious as they are, you can learn a lot about them in this song. In the radical romantic love that this album is talking about, this song called Carbon Dioxide, it really kind of puts forth the infatuation part. Maybe one of the biggest songs just kind of sonically that Fever Ray has ever put out at all. But, you know, it's called Carbon Dioxide, And there is also that kind of dark side. You know, if you're huffing this too much, it's going to hurt you. So it has that kind of, you're all in on this, but you know that probably this isn't going to work out in the end. But like, we're not thinking about that right now. Like this song is about, let's do this. They write these incredibly imagistic lyrics, you know, pour yourself out of the sea, softest syrup over me. Okay, okay. And then this switch, sipping a sparkling tumor. Where where did that come from? I just kind of let this song wash over me in a way. Yeah, and I wanted to ask, what do you make of the last stanza there where they say, you had me on cuddle, swallowing the buds from the puddle. There's resounding gongs and clanging bowls. There's cats to guide my soul. It sounds like it's about a sound bath or something. Well, we know that cats are spiritual leaders. <laughs> um, I have actually have, you know, I just thought of something just now. I'm going to go back to this Bible verse, the 1 Corinthians 13, the first line. It's, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clinging symbol. No way. It's such a banger. Carbon dioxide is such a banger. This song is like the moment on the album when everything just goes up to 10. Mm-hmm. And even in that excitement or like a packed dance floor, there's still that like needling question of like, is this actually meaningful? Is this a deeper connection or is this just noise and hot air? Come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at the New Yorker. So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.
All right. We're going from Bieber Ray's sparkling tumor to Eve's tumor. And we didn't plan that somehow. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> the new album from Eve's tumor, uh, their real name is Sean Bowie. They grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee. And they learned guitar as a teenager by riffing on Nirvana, Green Day, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, the classic riff, Monsters of Rock. And Eve's first came to our attention with their album Serpent Music in 2016, which was just full of staticky weirdness. Listening to it kind of feels like if you're in the middle of nowhere, kind of randomly hitting on these strange frequencies on the radio that fuzz in and out but in the most beguiling way. Their next couple of albums, they released on the kind of famed indie label Warp, Safe in the Hands of Love in 2018, and Heaven to a Tortured Mind in 2020, were these pretty epic experimental slash rock slash R&B albums. So now, uh, alongside their band of glam rockers, they're releasing this new album, which is called Praise the Lord Who Choose, But Which Does Not Consume, or Simply Hot Between Worlds. But what does it mean? Like, I th I'm pretty sure it's, it seems inspired by Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, the, the classic Stanley Kubrick movie. I'm, I'm chewing on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I got, right? It's like, I think they're talking about being chewed up and spit out again and finding some kind of redemption in that because at least you're not being swallowed by God. The other part of the title, or simply Hot Between Worlds, suggests this limbo, you know, everything is fluid with their entire project. So it rings true. I was just curious, like, what kind of references did you guys hear throughout this album? Like, Anna, what were some of the things that stuck out? So when I hear, like, Meteora Blues, like, the first thing that I think of, because of the sound of this album and the way that, you know, the guitar is mixed into the tracks, for example... I hear Meteora and I think of Meteora, the title of the biggest Linkin Park album. Mm. Y2K, new metal sort of sound is something that Eves is like discreetly mining on this track, I think, even if it's not intended as a conscious reference. But when I hear the very first seconds of Meteora Blues, just for a second, it sounds like Wonderwall. It sounds like somebody is about to fake you out and play Wonderwall. No, I thought the same exact thing. In the song, like Eve sings a line about sort of your cherry lips. And it made me think of the garbage song, Cherry Lips Go Baby Go, mm. which also has, you know, late 90s alt rock song. And it also has a chorus that really like crashes in with a lot of force and a lot of guitars after a, a quieter passage in the verse of the song. Cherry Lips, the garbage song is also like I hear it as like a drag anthem. It's a song about dressing up and like gender bending. I don't know if Eves Tamora is a garbage fan, but like if you're listening, Eves, I think you would really like Cherry Lips. It reminds me of Meteora Blues. Phil, uh -huh. what do you hear on this track? Um, I heard the chorus in Meteora Blues struck me almost as kind of pop punk. Like, 
I hear a lot of like post-punk revival here, but there's something about that that sounded to me almost like pop punk. Some of the references I heard across the album are Block Party, like what you're saying, a kind of like post-punk revival. And there's some Smashing Pumpkins, Marilyn Manson a little bit. Also, similarly, as malleable as the sound and the production are and the different references, like I feel like their voice is really malleable as well. It almost seems like a new singer on every track. They go from this kind of really choir boy falsetto to the sleazy kind of talk singing. Like, Phil, how do you consider Eves, like, as a vocalist? I mean, I think they do a lot with layering and with using kind of contrasting registers that's really effective. They use their voice as, as texture in really interesting ways. And I think there are lines that jump out at me, but I think in a lot of these songs, I get this sort of shoegazy vibe from, from this record, even when it doesn't sound specifically like shoegaze. But it is that wall of sound, that wash of sound, to me, the, the vocals are just part of that kind of rush of sensation. To me, it is almost like Prince Mad Libs. Or, you know, <laughs> they're just using this, they're using this, these ideas of rock lyricism and just twisting them a little bit. But, you know, there's cherry red lipstick, a lot of images you might be familiar with, but just coming from like a unique place. I'm interested that you hear almost a different vocalist on every song because I think they're so recognizable and mm. have the sort of huskiness, kind of a scratchy itchiness to their voice that is, you know, perhaps a, a music teacher would try to train out of you, but mm. is something that they embrace. I love how the very first, very top of the album is them sort of just giving this guttural scream. Mm-hmm. You can't know yet whether that's a scream of you know, enthusiasm, like, is that the scream <laughs> at the top of, like, the MC5 song? Or is it, like, you know, a scream of, like, pain and disgust and terror? Similar to Philip, I often find their lyrics a little impenetrable. It's hard for me to kind of imagine what this song is meaning to say. The songs are never trying to tell, like, a discreet story. Later on the song, Parody, they sing about, like, you know, a parody of a pop star. You behaved like a monster. And they ask, is this all just makeup? Which is you know, quite a literal reflection on, you know, probably what it feels like to be a glam rock star, maybe to what it feels like to be someone who is quite successful musically, but not quite, you know, internationally famous and sort of the cognitive dissonance that you have there between your personal self and your public self. Eve has some actually some really incredible writing in there with things like, I feel like I'm fluorescent holding you. That's one of those lines that just jumps out at me. I think they have a really interesting way of their cadence or their diction. There's some really interesting line breaks and enjambment. And yeah, I think what you're talking about 
as far as the lyrics and the vocals keeping you off balance, a lot of that is also rings true in the arrangements of the songs mm. and the production. Um, you think a song will be going one way and then it suddenly takes a turn another way. Is one of my favorites. It's called Heaven Surrounds Us Like a Hood. And this is one of the bigger songs on the album, just like huge riffs. And in the middle of it, it kind of stops. And you think maybe the song is over. And then this kind of Led Zeppelin riff. It honestly reminded me of Stairway to Heaven, which, uh, you know, would kind of go along with this album's <laughs> title as well. But this kind of riff comes in and then it just gets bigger and bigger. And there's these sound effects of thunder and lightning. And it's just it's an immense, immense song. And I completely love it. This album was co-written and produced with Noah Goldstein, who uh, also did production on Yeezus and Twig's Magdalene album and also Motomami, the Rosalia album. And you really get the sense that he helped Eves kind of step up the sound of this album to get to these kind of heavenly moments or hellish. <laughs> One thing that I was thinking about is just at this point in the Eve's tumor journey, you know, we're seven or so years in, they're still not giving us a lot as far as information about themselves. You know, maybe if we knew a little bit more about them, we'd be able to, you know, infer more from the lyrics instead of them not meaning as much. It's, it sounds like you're saying that Eve should do an interview on pitchfork.com. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say this is this is a real features editor talking. <laughs> yeah, I mean that would be cool. Before I started to perceive some of these songs as self-addressed, I wanted to know more because I wanted to know more about like what world are these coming from. But as I've started to perceive the songs as being more internal and like kind of addressed to the mirror, I think it is maybe actually helpful to not have more details because when you don't have more details you can only work from your own experience and if i started to know more about like sean bowie the person i'd be like well that doesn't apply to me i'm not like that uh -huh, right. and i want that i want that mystery to like stay intact i wonder if the songs would even not be as appealing the mystery of the songs would even not be as appealing to me if i knew more of the facts yeah no i think that's what they're going for i mean i, I feel like there's a lot of mysteries involved with these artists but i feel like we're solving a few with this podcast and for that I, i'm very grateful Anna and phil thanks a lot for being here thank you yeah thank you both Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast. You can find Anna at Tweasfuck and Phil at Philip Sherburn. And you can read all of their writing at pitchfork.com. Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. James Trout at Rococo Punch is our technical producer. Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor. I'm Ryan Domble. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>